Uh, so firstly, let's have a look at this, this idea of a new heaven and a new earth. You know, the idea of a new earth is a familiar theme in the Bible. Many of the prophets spoke about it. Uh, if you have a look at Isaiah 65, uh, verse 17, for example, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the new heavens referred to here doesn't mean the, the heaven where God is. The Bible uses heaven in three senses. The first is sort of like the sky. Uh, the second is outer space. And then the third is the place where God dwells in glory. And so when the Bible talks of new heavens, it's the first two that it's talking about. And the ancient Greek word translated new here, which of course you all know, um, I didn't, uh, it's uh, kain, K-A-I-N-E, and it means new character or, or fresh. You know, think along the lines of, I feel a totally new person after my spa day. That kind of new and that kind of fresh. Um, it, it doesn't mean sort of new or, or recent in time. This isn't just like the next heaven and, and the next earth. This is the better heaven and the better earth, replacing the old as the first earth will pass away. And we read that this will truly be a new heaven and a new earth, one that's not simply kind of put back together or, or rejigged with all the same bits and pieces that we see around us now. We will recognize it, but at the same time, it will take on a completely new dynamic and atmosphere. In Luke 23, uh, 21, verse 33, Jesus said that the new heaven, uh, sorry, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word will live forever. And so there seems to be a, a genuine physical transformation described here, not just uh, a spiritual and moral one. One theologian notes that in this chapter, we see that the history of time is finished and the history of eternity is about to begin. So there is this refreshing and a renewing, not a, a violent annihilation of all that is known. And then in verses 2 to 4, John describes this new holy city, Jerusalem. And, and those words, holy and new, distinguish it from any earthly city. And, and this is our direction of travel as followers of Jesus. And so we're going to sort of go through the proverbial keyhole uh, for a moment and just have a look at what it's like. The name Jerusalem gives it continuity with earth. But this is the place where we find our true citizenship. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 20, for example, reminds us that our eternal citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth. And it's description as a city reminds us that this is a place with many people interacting with and in relationship with one another. This isn't isolation, but this is the perfect community of the people of God. You know, here on earth, we haven't known and we won't know communities without sin and failure. But here, we're offered something unique, a pure, sinless community of righteousness, morally unambiguousness, and a truly perfect, holy city. It sounds like somewhere that I would like to go. I wonder about you. Jerusalem is also described as a bride for her husband, 
And perhaps for John and some of us, that's a, a striking and beautiful image that resonates. And the reference to God dwelling with us recalls Moses' tabernacle and the dwelling place of God on earth in the Old Testament. You know, then it represented God's presence here. But the tabernacle of God is the reality of his presence right here with us. Verse 3 says, he will dwell with his people and they will dwell with him. There's no barrier there anymore. God desires to live in close relationship with us, and our purpose is to be his people. And that simply and beautifully sums up God's desire and humanity's purpose. And I think that's a pretty glorious truth. I love the way um, Charles Spurgeon reflects on these verses. He saw God's dwelling with humanity as the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall. He says, I do not think that the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, this was Adam's highest privilege, that he had companionship with the Most High. And that companionship by its nature means the absence of a few things that we here on earth experience all too often. That absence means that there will be no tears, no sorrow, no darkness or death or pain. Every tear, every single painful, gut-wrenching tear and there will have been many in our lives, will be wiped away forever. Every tear of disappointment, of sympathy, of yearning, of loss, will be dried once and for all. God's eternal presence and never-ending comfort will be ours. And then, as if that's not enough, John's vision in verse, verse 22 goes on to describe how every part of this new city will carry the fragrance and the presence and the hallmarks of God. And to start with, there's no temple in it. And in the ancient world, it was completely unthinkable to have a great city without many different temples. You know, it's like saying, oh, you know, I went to town, but there was no Primark there. I mean, it's rubbish. Or, I, I went to town and there was no Starbucks, or there was no bank or post office. You know, you get the idea. But in this city, there's no temple, not because it's lacking or someone forgot to put it there, but because there is something so much better than that. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple hasn't been removed, but expanded in that everything everywhere, every place is holy and is the dwelling place of God. And I think that's pretty amazing. You know, through Jesus, all creation will be the place that God rests and rules the world with his people. You know, heaven will be a place of pure worship. So there won't be a temple and there won't be a need for the sort of normal things uh, that we navigate our days with. The things that distract us, including buildings, uh, screens, or the PA setup, or the refreshments rotor, 
you know, they just won't be an issue and the focus will be solely and completely on the person that we worship, Almighty God. You know, none of our joy or beauty or knowledge will be based on sort of created things, but only on the Creator. And by faith, we, we can know some of that right now. We can decide to put our trust in God so completely that our joy, what we consider beautiful and good, and where we set the foundation of our knowledge is based on Jesus and not on anything created. In heaven, the light and joy of proximity with God will mean we know him as he knows us. And we hear these kings of earth mentioned in the verses we read. We're not entirely certain uh, of who these, uh, who these kings of the earth are. But they indicate there's going to be order and organization that will be saved from a corruption of spirit by the God-breathed influences of the holy city. So there will be perfect order, there will be deep joy, and there will be unending peace. Our purpose will be fulfilled, and everything that distracts and weighs us down will be no more. But will we recognize each other? Like, will we be able to find each other in this kind of busy city? You know, where are we going to live? What will we wear? Like, what will our address be? Um, I don't know if those are the kinds of questions that keep you up at night sometimes, maybe, just me. Um, but... I remember when we, um, uh, we first moved here to Winchester and uh, when we first knew Christchurch uh, to um, uh, serve my curacy. And uh, we were really keen to know where we'd be living. And as it was during lockdown, the, the previous uh, curate's leaving service was broadcast online and, and, and he and his family were living in the house that we were going to move into. Uh, and during the um, uh, service, uh, it went live to his house and these gifts were dropped off on the doorstep uh, and everybody kind of said their goodbyes. And my wife and I were, were watching this and obviously, you know, saying goodbye. Um, but also quite interested in, in what the house looked like. And so we watched the service, and then later that evening, uh, we went back and watched it again, like in slow motion, a frame at a time. <laughs> you know, the door opened, we were pausing it, where does that door go? What's the deck all? Oh, the stairs are nice. Or oh, what's that cupboard? Um, and it's really sad and quite embarrassing, but we just wanted to know what the house we were moving into was going to look like, and that was our only way of doing it. The curiosity and the questions about our eternal future and what it, what it looks like in real practical terms are, are, are natural ones to consider. But actually, we don't need to concern ourselves with any of it. It doesn't really matter because we can have faith that the new Jerusalem, that heaven will sustain us and nourish us like nothing we have known before. Looking at the imagery in chapter 22, though, we can get some kind of idea of just what it might be like. Verse 1 describes a crystal clear river flowing from the throne of God. And throughout the Old Testament, once again, prophets such as Isaiah would use this picture of a river as a powerful expression of richness and provision and peace. And it's a powerful image as water is precious, particularly to the eyes and ears of John's readers in the east. And this water is completely clear. 
just like God's motives are clear and unpolluted. And the water comes directly from God's throne, so it can't be anything but pure and abundant. Verse 2 of chapter 22 then describes this tree of life. And as Sue mentioned, this, the grand biblical narrative comes full circle. The Bible begins with a tree of life in Genesis 3, which man couldn't eat from after the sin at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now it appears here once again. And it may be hard for some of us to sort of accurately picture this description of biblical landscape gardening that sort of follows on um, with the, the sort of the tree's roots seemingly on either side of the river. You know, some commentators see the one tree as sort of a, a reference for a series of trees that would stand on either side. But however we might sort of depict this image in our mind's eye, the reappearance of the tree points to the restoration of all things. And the tree will produce fruit, suggesting in some way that time still passes in heaven, but maybe not quite as we currently understand it. And that may even prompt us to ask, well, do we still eat in heaven? Like, is that still going to be a thing? I mean, I definitely hope there's going to be an endless Chinese buffet uh, with industrial amounts of cream cakes that are not in the least bit bad for you, uh, but maybe that's just me. The evidence from Scripture suggests that we can, but we won't need to. Angels eat with Abraham, for example, in Genesis 18. And of course, the heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people is described as a marriage supper in Revelation 19, verse 9. So I think for those of us that might feel peckish for some of eternity, uh, we might well just be uh, catered for. So there's a, there's a street, uh, there's a river, there's trees, there's fruit... There's leaves. You know, are we to take from these verses that this is a, a literal or, or a symbolic description of the heaven that followers of Jesus are promised? Well, of course, this is a vision after all, and some of the language might well have reached its absolute limit when attempting to describe the most perfect and beautiful of places. And perhaps we can't really describe another dimension without using symbols. But I think it would be pretty reasonable to suggest that when we see the river, for example, we might well say, well, that looks like a river. And that we'll see each other. And we'll interpret these things in the majesty and the beauty that they have in a unique way. What is certain is that the curse of Eden, the fall of humanity that we read about in Genesis 3 will be no more. But not only that, it will be exchanged with the throne of God and the Lamb. The throne of grace and mercy. The throne which says it's done. It's over. Nothing and no one, no force of evil or even Satan himself can ever lay a finger on any believer ever again because the throne of God has triumphed and the Lamb has won the ultimate and final victory. And we'll see his face. There will be face-to-face -face fellowship with God in the same way, sort of, that we're looking at each other now will be able to gaze into the face, into the very heart and very soul and very character of Christ Jesus. And finally, finally, 
understand him and his work, his love, and all that he is, as we have never understood him before. And that's then, in the future. And so what about now? Well, because of Jesus, we can know a glimpse of the face of God today. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul also anticipates an even greater fulfillment of seeing the face of God, as now we sort of see in this mirror dimly. But he says, we shall know him just as we are known. It's as if his name will be written on our foreheads, and there will never be any doubt that we belong to him in what will truly be the greatest glory of heaven. To know God, to know Jesus more wonderfully than we ever could here on earth. And then the closing words of Revelation, and indeed the Bible, remind us that Jesus is coming. Surely I am coming quickly. Right to the end of Scripture, we're reminded to be ready and watchful. And that's the message of Revelation and of Scripture itself, to to ready ourselves for the triumphant and glorious return of Jesus. The answers to the problems of life don't ultimately rest on our shoulders, but in the return of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing and no one that will stand in his way. And no matter who we are or what we've done, no one is beyond the mercy or out of reach of the love and grace of God. As we were reminded last week, there is always a way home. The Bible sets out a story of God and his pursuit of us. And Revelation animates this story through its vivid and striking imagery and metaphor. We are invited to become part of that story, not to be passive observers as the battle unfolds before our eyes, as if we are watching this epic tale unfold on the big screen, but to participate in the struggles and to share in the victories. We live in a world, don't we, where the four horsemen of war and destruction are seemingly running wild. And yet we are gathered as an army, ready to battle the spiritual forces in his name. And we may know what it is to feel helpless and vulnerable, but we can also know the protection that God provides. And we know for sure that we, as we accept the invitation to live out this story, we can be certain of how it ends. It ends with the powers of darkness and oppression and injustice defeated and the glory of the heavenly city paved with gold under our feet. And so a question for us this evening as I, as I finish is, are you living ready? Are you living ready? 
I wonder if you might pray a prayer with me now. It's just a short prayer. Uh, And it's just a prayer that says, God, I accept your invitation to join in this story of Revelation. Would you make me ready? And it might be something that you've done before, and it's an affirming of that invitation. Or it might be something that for the first time you're thinking, yeah, I kind of, I want a bit of this. So don't pray it if you're not ready. But if you are, I'd really encourage you to pray it in your heart as I pray now. So let's pray.